0: This week on A Lively Experiment, the evergreen bill heads to the governor's desk, but will she sign it? And the general treasurer paints another bleak picture for locally run pensions. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us with their insights, political contributor Don Roach, Leanne Senek, national committee woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party, and former state representative Mike Marcello. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jim Humblet. It's great to have you with us this week. Some call it the Evergreen Bill; others, continuing contract legislation. Whatever the name, it is one step closer to becoming law as the state Senate passed the union-backed bill on Wednesday, over the howls of local mayors and managers. And the governor says she is leaning towards signing it. So, will it level the negotiating field as proponents propose, or? Handcuff management trying to reach an agreement. I guess that's the $64 million question. Did this bill ever come up when you were in the General it, Assembly? It
1: did. It was, I think, when my, my, during my tenure there, we had heard this bill, and it had been um, heard, and it stalled. And I, let me tell you why it stalled. It stalled because there were more moderates in that chamber than there are now, who, uh, including people like Joy Hearn and Jared noons, uh, rep, rep from Barrington and rep from uh, West Warwick, who are really vocally against these type of bills. And there was a group of us, including myself, um, who really worked hard to keep those bills under wraps. And um, right now, I mean, this is just really the, the the moderate wing of the Democratic Party uh, in the General Assembly is not being heard. We would speak against these bills. We would speak against these bills in committee. We would have conversations with our, our rank-and-file members. And um, I think that helped you know, keep the bills under wraps. And we have of course, at the time, we had the support of the governor uh, as well because um, she was at that time not really that in favor of the bill. So... Um, People ask me what's changed, really the the, the the strong moderate force in that general assembly is no longer there.
0: Do you understand it's the same arguments that the managers and the mayors had back then in ter- I mean Absolutely. what do you think that, what do you think the practical effects of the bill is going to be? You know, I
1: think it will I mean I don't I don't think it is dra- draconian as people think it will be, but I think it does take a little bit of the bargaining power away from uh, cities and towns, because if if you can't come to an agreement, you just continue the same uh, contract. It's always good to have that little threat. Okay, look, if, if the, the the law was used to be this, if you are in a distressed community and you came to uh, an impasse in negotiations, then you could unilaterally change the contract. That was the law, and now. Now it's not. Now, I, I, the other thing that I find amazing is we all talk about the beauty of collective bargaining. Well, they just took this chip off the, you know, either you believe in collective bargaining from day one or you don't. You just can't take chips off the table without kind of giving a rebalance to it.
0: Thank Leanne?
2: Well, I think that the outrage that you saw from the League of City and Towns, the mayors, and the town administrators across the state is very telling. If these are people who are telling you that they are in charge of their municipalities and this is going to make it more difficult for them to make negotiations and do those things, especially as we're looking at this looming pension crisis, which is probably the, the, the biggest thing our state is facing, this is only going to contribute more and more to that. How, how do we fix what we had if we can't negotiate that? And they're taking that tool away from them. And the governor's response to them to just do their jobs is just totally tone deaf um, and I think if she were actually not term limited she might have a different response to that
0: right because she when she vetoed the bill it was two years ago before the election
3: yeah the governor's response is really kind of odd because of you know what she ran on in terms of the pension reform and how this really affects the different cities and towns and how they are so strongly against it it just It just changes the balance of power, to me, too too much, and that's not something we should do.
1: It it, it was whittled down a bit. I mean, I think it's limited to salary and benefits, with obviously the two costly parts of the contract. It used to be continue the entire contract. But now I believe the new law basically limits those to salary issues and and, and benefits health care, which are obviously call costly. But, you know, this is not a or republican thing. The Democratic you know uh, mayors across the state are against this bill. So it's going to be interesting to see how they, you know, lobby the governor and really see if they can get our attention on this issue. But
0: you made an interesting point that a lot of people, and look, the Journal endorsed Nick Mattiello as the firewall, right? He's the one who's going to keep, and you wonder whether part of this is that progressive flank that we've talked about, right, since the last election. And you wonder, so, so some people are saying, wow, is he really the firewall that we thought he would be? Because he, I heard him on the radio yesterday saying, absolutely, we need this legislation.
3: Definitely not the firewall. Um, and you can see that, you know, Mike was mentioning about the uh, moderates. You have no real uh, conservative wing of the General Assembly either. And so, you know, the progressives are just running things, and they're running things the way that they want to.
0: So uh, you, th- you think any doubt that the governor is going to sign this?
2: I think she will sign it. Yeah.
3: The firefighters bill, though,
0: and that's that's another one. Isn't Didn't it really come down to this, Mike, is that when North Kingstown, East Providence 10 years ago, they always used that they had to unilaterally go in and make the cuts. North Kingstown, teachers. that contract, the teachers, the contract was up, right? And then Correct. they instituted the 56-hour. Isn't that really what's driving this bill?
1: Ye- yes, but again... That, that's federal law. The federal law allows, you know, to, do that for, to go from a uh, for 42, 56, to, 40, 42 to 56, 56 without paying. And that, yeah. that, that recognizes the unique role that Fire Fridays play. You know, they're, they're on either 24 hours and then they're off to 48 hours and then on 24 hours. That's the general, the general schedule. And then they're off for five days after that. And let's not forget... Firefighting is a difficult job. I'm not. My brother's a firefighter, but they can also sleep on the job as well. I mean, they get to sleep when they're not, you know, out on calls and whatnot. So, um, you know, what that bill did was basically make it impossible for cities and towns to go to a three-platoon system, which basically would spread out the, 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 the overtime, excuse me, the the time that the men are in, men and women are in, in the station. So, it basically makes it very, very expensive to implement any kind of structural changes in the way that um, cities and cities and towns manage their fire department from the platoon system. And again. There's a reason why federal law allows this exemption because they recognize as firefighters have unique schedules, right. and we just threw that out the window with this bill. Leanne,
0: you mentioned the pensions. Uh, State Treasurer General uh, General Treasurer Seth Magaziner had a pretty bleak picture this year. Uh, this week, said that 35 locally run pensions have a combined total of two and a half billion dollars. Of unfunded liability, of course, Providence leads the way with a billion dollars on that. Um, I don't know whether Mayor Alors has given up or or where you go, but that's an I mean that's a huge clarion call for if if you're a retired worker in one of these communities, I would be worried. Unless I mean, if I was on the younger side, probably right. Yeah, I don't know if
3: you'd be worried because you've got a General Assembly who continues to. Basically, either do nothing. You've got politicians who do nothing, or do everything that they can to support this pension system. And so, the taxpayer is really who who's the one who should be worried. Not, not necessarily for the folks on the pension. I'd be worried as, if I'm a homeowner. You know, if I own a business, that's the person who should be worried. Especially because with Allure's, uh this week with the uh, with the uh, property tax, I think the budget he proposed. Uh, uh, hits the 4% cap. So the answer to all of the questions is put more uh, uh, burden on the taxpayer.
0: Right, because they've, the law has been that if you have taxing authority, you've got to meet those contractual obligations.
2: Yes, and uh, the Ryan Center for Freedom and Prosperity came out this week with a very extensive report showing that 25% increase on cities and towns, on taxpayers, that 25% increased burden to taxpayers because of these liabilities. And it's, it's there's a theme that runs through all of this, and it's the fact that we keep looking to the government um, to try and fix everything for us. And the General Assembly in particular is overstepping, and it's it's, it's uh, taking the ability of the cities and towns to manage those things that they can manage. And they're interfering with their ability to do that. And I think that's not good in the mm-hmm. long run for any of us because you need that kind of autonomy in the cities and towns. And we should be looking at kind of consolidating some of services amongst the cities and towns and things where we can save money. And instead we're putting these mandates in that make it more difficult for them to do the, the things that they should be doing.
1: Well, let, let me remind you, however, that these are private pension plans. So these are cities and towns who opted out of the state pension system and created their own little pension plans. Uh, and
0: the treasurer noted that the state one is doing better. Better.
1: And so, um, so this is municipal control. Unfortunately, the municipalities haven't showed a good record of managing their own pension plan as, as, as good as the state. Um, I think one of the things that we forget about, when we did the statewide pension reform, and I was there, and it was not a fun, fun thing to do, and it was, a, it was a nasty fight, but it needed to be done. Governor Chafee at the time said, hey, we need to look at the municipal uh, pension plans as well and see if we can shore those up, but we've got resistance from the municipality. said, so, you know, this is our little baby. Let's figure it out. And frankly, there was no oxygen in the room to get two things done, it's two major you know, pension issues like that. But it, it is a problem. Providence has obviously uh, got the biggest problem, but even towns like my town in Situate, uh, 42 percent funded. Uh, and it's taking and Johnston and, and J- Smithfield. Exactly. They, they cited. And so. and you know we don't have a big a bigger basis as, as Providence does, and you know 000, 000 in a million dollars in a, a small budget like situate to pay for pension plans is is, is a bl- less money that we have for schools and roads and infrastructure. Oh. So um, these needs these plans de- do need to be addressed but these are also municipal plans created by the municipality. So this is not really this is a state issue because it affects all of us. But let's not forget, this was not created by the state. This was Coming created by... Coming the from
0: the former state legislator. Yes. <laughs>
2: but we also have to look at how we can change those. And I think you can see um, in Cranston in particular, they started to implement 401K plans rather than a municipal pension-type plan. Right. And so for people going forward in that system, that's something that needs to be looked at. And if the General Assembly wants to mandate something, maybe that's something that they should look into mandating is changing those plans over to take that um, liability away from the cities and towns and and start to manage these things better by putting them, the city employees, the town employees, anyone in these pensions into 401k style plans that that the rest, the 90% of the people in the state have rather than just the 10%.
0: All right, we talked about uh, Providence having the biggest pension liability. Mayor Alorza introduced a nearly three-quarters of a billion dollars. Roll that around on your tongue. $773 million budget. uh, Talking about, obviously, you know, it's kind of like a state-of-the-state, things he'd like to do. There was not one mention, Don, of the unfunded pension liability. Uh, Maybe if I'm the mayor, I would do that, too. But that seems to be the gorilla in the room that he did not address.
3: Yeah, and I I just don't understand it. You've got a billion-dollar pension, unfunded pension liability, and it's not something that you address in your budget. But at the same time, there's no political fallout for him. There's no consequence at all for him, the council, whatever. Um, If you're a Democrat in the state of Rhode Island and you're elected, I feel like you can pretty much do whatever you want.
0: I think it's also a little disingenuous for the mayor to say, well, we didn't raise taxes. Well, anybody who knows when you have a reval and, the, and your values go way up, you have to drop the tax rate to equalize. It's what did I pay last year, what did I pay this year? There are a lot of people in Providence who are facing pretty significant tax increases. They're bringing in $12 million more, but they're only giving a million and a half of that to the schools. Wouldn't you think that would be the priority, right?
2: You would think, yes. And you would think that they would have more emphasis on looking at what has been successful in charter schools in the city, too, and moving those into the public schools. And I I don't think there's been that focus on that. And some of the things that they're proposing for the public schools, again, is more of that looking towards the government to fix everything for us. They're talking about bringing doulas in. They put money aside for washing machines and to do laundry for for children there. Uh, Where does that personal responsibility of not just the the people in the schools, but the the parents, um, we need to be looking at that and looking at more of a community. Why are we having kids that need to go to school to do their laundry? Doesn't make any sense. Well,
1: I think one of the good things that's coming out of the new education commissioner's that, and with the governor and with the mayor, the mayor's support, they're going to go in and do a really top-to-down 60-day study of the Providence school system and hopefully the urban core systems as well. Um, we have a problem there. Right, we're, we're failing a lot of kids, and uh, we really need to draw attention to. Um, how we improve public education in Providence and every every community, but necessarily Providence as well, because of the the number of kids there and the number of kids who are not meeting the state standards. So that's a good thing. I'm gonna and I, and I applaud the mayor for actually partnering with the state and let's try to turn this system around. And you wouldn't we have had a
0: choice whether the right. governor said, "Hey, get on board, or you may face a takeover."
1: Right. right. Well, I mean, in many ways, I think to takeover might be easier for the bail for them mayor out. to bail them out. But I think you know he's he, he's expressed a willingness to work to, to get this done, and we need to do it. Should have been probably done 20 years ago, but hey, we're. We've got to take what we can get.
0: You know, just yesterday, the um, the new Ed Commissioner, Angelica Infante-Green, it's her first week, and she had this meeting, and, and Linda Borg from the Journal wrote that she was overwhelmed by what she heard. Now, this is a woman who has seen an awful lot of stuff, but it was not just the urban schools. They were talking about some schools out you know, in the in the suburbs that are failing our children. So as she comes in, you wonder what's going through her mind, like, wow, did I know what I, I'm getting into here in Rhode Island?
3: Yeah, and Mike was talking about 20 years ago we should have done things in Providence. Actually, 20 years ago I was a student teacher at Central High School. Um, and just watching how the administration of the school treated the children in terms of what they expected of those children at school was just why I didn't go into teaching. Um, but they just had no level of expectation for them to become really anything. And I think that that has to change. I think administration administrators uh, within the Providence school system need to expect more from the kids and then at the same time have to understand the context from which these kids are coming to school. A lot of them uh, do come to school without having breakfast. I do understand Mayor Lorza. That a lot of them do come, you know, not, with not clean clothes. But the way that we address it, to me, is not to lower our standards, but is to raise the expectation and raise the standards within the schools.
0: What does the new Ed Commissioner need to be doing? I mean, among many things, in your mind.
2: In many, many things. And I think specifically they need <laughs> to look at best practices that have worked in other places. I think the charter schools have made some headway as far as um, pilot programs and I think that they should be looking at what can be implemented in the public schools to do those same things whether it's, you know, English language learners and the programs they have for that. They can get those um, started and get them more mainstreamed into classrooms more quickly. I think that's something they have to look into very very much so because that's a definite problem here in in Rhode Island. Um, There's a lot of money that's being spent on students to get them up to a certain grade level where they're not. So we're looking now at, you know, Nope pre-K and bringing kids in that, you know, once they reach that third grade level, if they're not at a certain reading ability, they're not going to be able to advance. So that's key to what we're looking at. And and when we're talking about giving away money towards free college and things like that, I'd rather see us focusing on that K-12 through education and making sure those kids are graduating with actual skills that they will need um, in our state to survive.
1: You know, I think a quick solution is to have a longer school day. But unfortunately, a longer school day, you know, from the, from the union's perspective, they want more, the teachers want more money um, for, for teaching a longer school day. So, but I think the kids in, in Providence and many, many districts, um, you know, need that. You know, uh, uh, Commissioner Gist got a lot of uh, uh, flack, but she, she said one thing that rang true with me. The, the, the best indicator of a successful student is a successful teacher, and teacher who raises expectations. Good teachers make the big difference.
0: All right. Uh, <laughs> Burville made some uh, national news this uh, week and Gloucester soon to follow as they declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuary communities. Of course, this is a little bit of a dig at the sanctuary uh, cities in Providence. And I love how the governor said, well, I have to follow the law. You know, they should be following the law. What is your take on this? You live in northern Rhode Island.
2: I think it's kind of ingenious. Um, I really do. I think, <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Know, it's, well, it's just, you know, kind of that way of putting it back on if, if we're going to have this super large bloated government and we're not going to follow some of the laws, then where do we draw that line? If we want to make sanctuary states and sanctuary cities for Um, immigration, then can we not do the same thing for the Second Amendment? And I think that's a good way to get that dialogue out there, to get people talking about it, which it certainly has. And with the bills that are pending in the General Assembly for gun control, I think this is going to wake people up and have them talk about it in a way that is a little bit more genuine. And for the governor to to sit there and say, you know, oh, we've got to follow the law. Well, then we've got to follow the law all the way through on, on every issue then.
1: Unfortunately, the law says, however, that local law enforcement officials cannot be forced to enforce national immigration Immigration laws—that's not the role. The Supreme Court has said that, that it's not the role of local local governments and local law enforcement agents to, to enforce immigration law. What the Barbour re- resolution says is that we're going to give police officers discretion on which law to, which laws to enforce, and that's a very very dangerous. That's a distinction, and it's a very very dangerous precedent. It's a lot
3: of nonsense. That's what it is. Yeah. What do you think, Don? It, it, it is a dangerous precedent, but I don't think it's nonsense necessarily. I think it's just more indicative of the polarization uh, w- of within the country and that people who are you know more conservative are feeling like you know what our values are being trampled upon and we're being forced to accept a lot of things that we don't necessarily want to accept and the rights that we do enjoy and do Uh, have are being challenged and nobody's standing up for us. And so I think this is a response to that.
0: Great. One more thing before we go to Outrageous. Uh, Former GOP Chairman Brandon Bell this week filed suit. They've been talking about this for a long time, challenging uh, the constitutionality of approval or lack thereof of sports gambling and now online sports gambling. Um, Mike, you were in the legislature when all of this kind of went through and what the argument is, and, of course, you wear your legal hat too, is that when they um, approved uh, class gaming all those years ago, that this fit under it. Well, at that time, sports gambling was illegal, illegal. Right, right, right in the Supreme right, Court. Right. So, I, so where your legislators hat and your lawyers hat, and they're not saying they're against sports gambling. It's like follow the rules in the
1: process. I think you know. I think they have a colorable claim. Um, I think it's very. It's a very interesting legal argument. I do agree that when that was passed, obviously the, we couldn't have conce- conceived that this was going to be sports betting because sports betting was illegal. So for now, to say that you know, five years later uh, that, you know, the voters intended to include that. You know, that's a very good argument. Um, I don't know where it's going to go, um, but I think it's a colorful argument. I don't know if these individuals uh, have standing to bring this suit. I'm not really sure how the courts are going to handle it, but I think it's a very, very interesting argument. And, you know, what the, the bigger problem is, is that our over-reliance on gambling revenues to run our state. Mm. Um, and, you know, I have always said, and I have a, a mixed records on voting for expansion and not expansion of gambling, um, you know, we should not be building the economic future in our state on increased gambling because those those revenues are cyclical and it's really not economic development in my opinion. It's sounding more like you today. I know. Uh, <laughs> <you're>, she's
0: rubbing <laughs> off on you. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be a Republican before you know. No, I don't think that
1: will happen, but
2: anyway. Well, I think that it's it goes beyond the issue of gambling and just goes to good government. Um, the fact that we didn't put this to the to the proper process and I'm glad that someone is speaking up for that because that process is there for a reason And and if we're talking about, you know, a dangerous precedent being set with the sanctuary bills for cities and this is another dangerous precedent that is set, that if we're not following the proper procedure, if the people in the General Assembly are not going to put things out to people to vote on and have their opinion brought in, then we shouldn't be doing that. So I'm glad that someone is speaking up for it.
0: Isn't the irony that 20 years ago, in the mid-90s, when they voted down, all casinos and Link Almond and everybody was... And now, I think if they put it on the ballot, everybody would be kind of like, ho-hum, right? It's not that the issue wouldn't pass.
3: Yeah, it's just more of the issue of the General Assembly, as I said earlier, feels like they can do whatever they want to do without any repercussions. And to me, that's why I think this lawsuit uh, is worthwhile, because we need to, there needs to be some checks and balances. I feel like I'm sounding like Brandon. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you were on Brandon yeah. last yeah. time you were here, right? Well, you know what's going to be interesting? I don't think they can do this, but what if, they, what if the lawsuit played out, Mike, and they said, no, you had to go through that? What about the revenue you've gotten up? until. Yeah, yeah. They're I not putting that in an no, escrow account, no, are they? No, I think they're they, not going to
1: keep that. You know, the interesting point is that the, the app allows you to gamble, I guess, for anywhere you are. So the, another argument is, do is you, you, so is, is you need to approval in every city? Interstate sitting, commerce. Every city oh, oh, yeah. in town where, where you could possibly do it. That's what the Constitution seems to suggest, so I don't know. Right. As, as I think it's a matter of the technology, the law not keeping up with the technology, and so there's got to be a there'll be a solution to this, but it's very interesting. And I think probably they should have got an advisory opinion before they did it, but they didn't. So now we're stuck to go to the courts.
2: To
0: be continued okay let's do outrageous land what do you have today well
2: i have a kudos uh first i have a kudos to my dad it's his 75th birthday today so i want to say happy oh, birthday happy to birthday. him and i want to congratulate him for staying in the state of rhode island which is the 49th uh, worst state to retire in and i think that a lot of the stuff that we talked about today is going to just make it even harder um for don't get him to, to watch here. the show don't <laughs> let him watch the show <laughs> But, you know, those people who are sticking it out here, we appreciate them. And my outrage is another bad bill, um, which fortunately yesterday was held for further study, but who knows when it's going to rear its uh, head again, and that is to fine restaurants and bars for giving uh, patrons plastic straws unless they've asked for them. Oh, my God. No. And it's just, it's, it's just another bad government outreach. Um, how do we enforce something like that? Are we going to have straw police, you know? I mean, and in not saying that we don't want to help the environment, that maybe it is a good thing to switch over, but let the, the free market take care of that. Let, let people be innovative and have different ways of doing that. We don't need that legislated for us. We don't need everything in our lives legislated, including the straws that we drink out of. Okay.
1: Mike, what do you have? So my outrage is the, uh, we've talked about a lot about the labor bills that are going through the General Assembly, but rarely we haven't heard much about good government bills uh, through the General Assembly. I know that Common Cause is pushing a redistricting bill to probably take that out of the uh, redistricting that's going to come up in 2020 to make that into a, a more nonpartisan commission to do the redistricting, drawing the lines for which people run from. Um, you know, other good government measures like uh, updates to the open meetings law. We're not hearing anything about that from the legislature this year, and I think that's a it's it's a it's a shame because I think um, we need we need to update our laws uh, not only for the you know, modernization of gambling but the modernization of how how people interact with the government today.
3: And no strengthening of the open records, right, Mr. No, open no, Records? No, no strengthening. We've got to review yeah. that. Yeah. Don, what do you have? So uh, my outrage this week is um, Facebook has decided to ban uh, Louis Farrakhan and Alex Jones um, among other, uh, I would say, right wing. Uh, folks who, you know, I don't support either one of those people, but I support uh, the right to speak freely. And you have in the, in the kind of like the cultural parlance today, everyone talking about Trump and his, you know, rants against the media as being a threat to, to like free press. Um, but to me, there is a threat to conservative ideas Again, not necessarily things that I personally agree with, but we've got to be able to support free speech, whatever form that takes. And I feel like what we're saying is we support liberal free speech, but we do not support conservative free speech. And that's my that's my outrage.
0: All right. Uh, nationally, Joe Biden announced last week, actually, just as uh, the day we were uh, taping. And uh, now he looks like a pretty commanding lead in the polls. Of course, this is May of 2019. Mike, the old guard, the new guard, and it's funny, the two guys who are leading are in their mid to late 70s. Leanne and I were talking about this. I can, sometimes I can barely get out of bed in the morning at my age. So <laughs> I, I don't know longer. about them running the country, memory issues or whatever, but Biden throws an interesting thing here, old new. What, what do you see the path here for him?
1: You know, it's it, you know obviously he's leading the polls. I think people recognize him. He's been on the stage for a very long time. He was the vice president under President Obama. Um, you know, his path you know, I'm not certain. I think there's still going to be that struggle within the Democratic Party of, you know, thank you, Joe, you've done a great job, but we need to turn the corner and, and go in a different direction. And, I'm, you know, the most important thing for Democrats, including myself, is we need to find a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. And two thousand and twenty twenty, right? Two thousand twenty. So, um, you know, if it's him, I think there'll be. You know, we got a long way to go. There's going to be some testing going on, and, and there's some there's some really good candidates out there. And I, you know, I think there's twenty two now. Um, I think we'll get down to the top five very quickly, uh, and it'll play itself out. He he has a fundraising lead. He's got the institutional party behind him, but I'm not so sure the institutional party is as strong. Um, is is the motivating factor of the of the core of the Democratic Party right now? There are a lot of young people and a lot of women who uh, really want to see some changes. And uh, if he can deliver, he may be the candidate, but I'm not convinced that he's a candidate yet. He may be the person. I,
3: I think that he is not as pompous and arrogant as Hillary Clinton. And, again, Clinton won the popular vote by billions of votes.
0: And some people think if he had run, he would have beaten Trump. He would have Trump. totally
3: won. Uh, he would have totally beaten Donald Trump because he would have been, he would have gone to the Midwestern states that she just decided not to go to right. and assumed that you and know, she would And didn't have
0: baggage, too. Right. As much baggage.
3: Yep. I mean, he, he, his baggage is probably going to come out, um, and maybe a year from now we'll see <laughs> that he had more baggage. Um, but right now, to me, he beats Donald Trump every day of the week.
2: What do you think? Well, I think Don brought up a good point about um, the flaw in Hillary Clinton's strategy in the last election is not going to some of those Midwestern Midwestern states and the fact that Trump was able to flip a couple of those states that they thought were safely blue. So if he can maintain those things, you know, there's a lot of talk from the Democratic uh, candidates that want to eliminate the Electoral College and change the way so that we're going to the popular vote. But I think that that was more of a flaw in Hillary Clinton's strategy sure. by ignoring those states than it is a flaw in the actual process of the Electoral College. Um, but that being said, I think that you're going to see a lot of movement in the Democrat Party more to the left as there are 22 candidates and they're kind of now just who is going to be more progressive who is going to move us more towards well, you have to do that for the primary you have to do that for the primary and, and then it's going you to make slide. it very difficult in a general election because the the majority of people in the country are more moderate so i think that it's going to make it more difficult when they have some of these like ideas that to conservatives in particular seem just so outlandish that it's going to be difficult for them to win widespread support and i think that's what we have to look at is what is going to resonate with the with the country and if the economy stays good, it's gonna be very, very difficult for any yeah, of these candidates yeah. to beat the incumbent president because of that.
1: You know, I'm part of the diversity of the Democratic Party. We have more women running, more people of color running. Uh, we have a gay uh, person running um, you know I think this is you know it's more reflective of what the what the country looks like in my opinion so I think it's a healthy for the Democratic Party to have this debate where it ends up we don't know um, we'll have a we'll have a primary process like everyone else um, but I think it's a healthy thing and it's going to energize the base and help probably raise money and get people motivated this is an election i and I, I Joe Biden great, great this is an election for for the future and I think Joe Biden hit it right on the head when he when he criticized the president for his his response to, to to Charlottesville, and I think it was a very good message, and I think a lot of people, whether you're Republican or Democrat, resonate the fact that we are all Americans together, and there is no uh, should be no sanction for any type of extreme extremism in this country, whether you're, you're Muslim or Jewish or whatever, uh, it, it, it just cannot happen, and and there's there's an element that are you know that are, are, are feeding on this this this. Uh, angst that i believe is coming from the president
0: all right that is all the time we have thank you for joining us don and leanne and mike good to see you again and uh good to see you we hope you join us back here next week as a lively experiment continues have a great week everybody experiment is generously underwritten by for 30 years a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues
3: facing rhode islanders hi i'm john hazen white jr and i'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program